Welcome to today's episode of Healthful Woman, a podcast designed to explore topics in women's health at all stages of life. I'm your host, Dr. Nathan Fox, an OBGYN and maternal fetal medicine specialist practicing in New York City. At Healthful Woman, I speak with leaders in the field to help you learn more about women's health, pregnancy, and wellness. Okay, we're here with Dr. Anne-Marie Straustrup, who is the Associate Professor of Pediatrics, OBGYN, and Public Health at Mount Sinai. She is a neonatologist and the System Chief of Newborn Medicine in Mount Sinai. Anne-Marie, welcome to Healthful Woman. Thank you. Good to be here. Basically, you're the director of the NICU at Mount Sinai. Can you just explain to our listeners what exactly is a neonatologist? A neonatologist is a pediatrician, so someone who's done general pediatric training, and then went on and spent three extra years learning how to take care of babies who are sick. So a lot of this is babies who are born early, born premature, but it also includes babies who are born with other illnesses, with with infections, with heart disease, with, with all the other things that can happen. So a neonatologist is one of the many people who work in a neonatal intensive care unit, typically as the lead doctor, taking care of all the babies who need special care after birth. Right. So when we refer to the division of newborn medicine, that's basically babies who are born either, you know, essentially in the hospital and then they come to you right away if they need to be. Right. So the the division of newborn medicine at Mount Sinai, and it's different in different health systems, but at Mount Sinai, that includes both babies that need to come to the NICU or the neonatal intensive care unit and babies who go to the well nurseries. So my group takes care, the neonatologists take care of babies in the NICU. And then we have a group of general pediatricians who specialize in newborn care who take care of newborns in the regular well nurseries, the babies who stay with mom after birth. Right. So you would be overseeing both the specialists in the NICU as well as the general pediatrician seeing the well babies who are with their moms. And that all falls under your purview. And before all of this corona happened, how would you normally be spending your time in terms of clinically or administrative or research? What do you normally do? My job is split into essentially three pieces. There's the clinical piece where when I practice, I practice as a neonatologist, so I take care of babies in the ICU. And that's mostly at Mount Sinai Hospital, but also a little bit at Mount Sinai West as well, which is our sister NICU on the west side of Manhattan. In my administrative role, I oversee the care of all babies born in the Mount Sinai Health System. So that's at Mount Sinai Hospital, at Mount Sinai West, and then also at our partners, Mount Sinai South Nassau out on Long Island. The things that I do from an administrative perspective are make sure that all of our policies and procedures and guidelines are aimed at providing the best care for babies, particularly for families um, who have babies born in our health system or transferred in. And then the other part of my time is spent on research. Yes. So I'm, I'm very interested in figuring out how to best take care of babies. So my research focus is looking at the NICU as an environment and trying to figure out from an environmental health perspective how we can improve the NICU to really foster baby development for babies who spend an extended period of time in the NICU. Right. And obviously, you and I have known each other for a long time now, uh, both clinically and also from a research perspective. And I think that maybe a lot of people don't realize that neonatologists and people who do newborn medicine and obstetricians work together all the time. We do. We see, we see a lot of you guys and you see a lot of us. So our patients, frequently their babies end up under your care and the babies you're taking care of, obviously, we take care of their mothers. And that's how you got an appointment in the department of OBGYN, even though you're not an obstetrician or gynecologist. Exactly. There's an awful lot of overlap between neonatology, newborn medicine, and obstetrics. Um, and And that's because we do really see it as taking care of the family. So from a clinical care perspective, if mothers have complicated pregnancies, either because there's something complicated about the fetus or because there's something complicated about the mom, we often 
work together on those cases from even before the time that the mom delivers to make sure that mom and baby have the best outcomes. And then from an administrative standpoint, I can tell you, you know, in general, but also increasingly over the past many weeks with COVID, you know, every new policy or procedure we put in to improve the care for our babies, we make sure that there is a corresponding policy and procedure to take care of the moms as well. So we really try to work together with the Department of OBGYN, with all the obstetricians, to make sure that we're as coordinated as possible. Right. So in general, there's always a very close coordination between your department, your division, and, you know, obstetrics and labor and delivery and whatnot. And that must have just been exponentially increased in the recent weeks because of COVID and everything that's going on in the hospital there. COVID has been really awful for everybody in terms of the disease. It's just an awful disease and and the disruption to the way that we do things. But I think the one silver lining is that we have really worked very closely with our partners across many different disciplines, but particularly between newborn medicine and OBGYN. Right. We recently had Angela Bianco on the podcast, and she's the director of labor and delivery. And that's exactly what she was talking about, how difficult the situation is both just on the face of it clinically because of all the people who are sick, but from an administrative perspective, how much more difficult it's been and how much more there is to do. And then she spoke specifically about what you just said in terms of like the silver lining to see such fantastic collaboration between different departments and people working together to come up with policies that are best for the moms and the babies together, and just how a crisis like this really has brought a lot of people together who were always together in a sense, uh, but this really just enhanced that and magnified it. Yeah, and I think right now everybody has exactly one focus, and it happens to be the same focus. And so that makes it really easy for us to all kind of come together towards the same goal. Nobody's distracted by any other competing priorities at the moment. It's a, it's all making sure the hospital is safe for patients with COVID and for patients without COVID. Right. So would you say this is taking like all of your time right now and probably extra time? Because COVID is such a, an incredible crisis, a lot of other things that, you know, were, were projects that we were working on, you know, and particularly actually my research have sort of been pushed to the wayside. So to make room for all the other things that need to happen. So from a newborn medicine perspective, the babies haven't really changed. And I'm sure we'll talk about this later, but we still have our regular patient population. We still have the same numbers of babies coming through for the most part, the same things that they always have come through for, for prematurity or congenital disease. But we also have this added layer of making sure that families and patients and staff are safe and trying to make sure that there isn't a lot of COVID in the newborn medicine spaces or that the the patients who come in with COVID are appropriately taking care care of when we're actually really focused on a different problem. You know, most of the pregnant women or women coming in to deliver who happen to have COVID at the moment aren't terribly sick with COVID. They, they just are having a baby. And so we have to figure out how to allow that normal process that we're very comfortable with to happen in this sort of new environment, new situation to make sure that we protect everybody involved. Additionally, one, one other complicating factor for my division is that neonatologists are ICU doctors. And You know, the hospital, the health system, the city really need a large number of new ICU doctors to be able to staff all the new ICUs to take care of adults who are sick. So some of my group who typically provide care in the neonatal intensive care unit have been asked to provide care in the adult COVID ICUs and to be ICU doctors for adults, which is something that we haven't done in a very long time. So there's been a lot of learning and sort of restructuring of processes, again, to make sure that the NICU can run as it always does and that newborn medicine can run pretty much as it always does with some accommodation for infection prevention, but to also allow our team to be able to serve in this other very needed way right now. 
And how was that decided? Was that because, you know, anyone who works in intensive care unit just understands the idea of a ventilator and ventilator settings and how these machines work and what tests you do? Is that the main reason, even though it's so different, obviously, between newborns and adults, but is that enough overlap that people are able to pick up on that and, and be comfortable in an adult ICU in some capacity? To a certain extent, intensive care medicine is very similar, um, regardless of who the patient is. So neonatal intensive care, pediatric intensive care, and adult critical care, intensive care, they call it something different, are all based on getting a person through a critical illness in which they either have a really bad infection or their heart isn't quite working right or their lungs aren't quite working correctly. And that translates across all sorts of different people. So, you know, more than you would think, my tiny preemies are actually not that different from the adults with COVID pneumonia in certain ways. So I can run a ventilator and I am very comfortable with blood pressure medications and managing infections. And and I think that in some ways it's actually more familiar for a neonatologist to take care of an adult with COVID than it might be for, say, an adult-trained dermatologist or orthopedic surgeon to take care of an adult with COVID because I'm very used to running an ICU. Right. It's just amazing. You talk about it like it's it's so normal. It's so straightforward. <laughs> and I just can't imagine, you know, someone who's went into pediatrics working in a NICU for whatever, 10, 15 years, and someone says, you know, here you go, you're an adult ICU. And obviously there's, you know, there's training and you catch up and whatnot. But it just speaks to how significant what's going on in the hospitals, how just everything has been turned upside down and there are people doing things that they never did, which is heroic in a sense to have these doctors who are coming in and, and filling roles they never thought they'd ever have to fill in their entire lives and stepping up and doing it is really remarkable and impressive. I have to give you all the credit in the world for that. That's very kind. I can tell you, if you'd asked me last fall if I thought I'd ever attended an adult ICU, my answer would have been, you've got to be kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but you're right, there is a lot of training, and the adult critical care docs have been really wonderful and supportive in doing sort of on-the-fly teaching with us. And I only claim to be able to take care of one type of patient. I you know, could not take care of the broad array of disease that adults have um, the way that I can with newborns. But I think, you know, we all we all want to help, and we recognize that in New York there's a great need, and, you know, we have a skill set that can be useful. We're very happy to put it to you. I mean, listen, kudos to you. That's really impressive. Getting back to the babies, in terms of first the babies that are entering your NICU and then the babies that are not entering the NICU are staying the moms in the well baby nurseries, are you screening all of them for coronavirus, for COVID? Are you doing a formal test? Are you just examining them? Are you not screening them? How are you doing it currently? And obviously these things might change over time. So our current practice is only to test babies for COVID if they have one of two things, um, either a mother who has tested positive for COVID and because labor and delivery at our hospital and at many hospitals are screening all mothers for COVID when they come in, we, we typically, what we will know within 12 hours of admission, whether that mom is positive or negative for COVID. So if mom tests positive for COVID, we will screen the baby. Or if the baby has signs or symptoms that could be COVID. So if a baby has a cough or if a baby has trouble breathing in a way that could be COVID, then we will send COVID testing on that baby. And what would you do differently for a baby who tests positive, assuming the baby has no symptoms? You know, the mom tests positive and then you find out the baby is or is not positive. How would that affect your treatment to the baby uh, in either nursery? So the babies who are well, who test positive for COVID, it doesn't actually change what we do all that much. If the mom is, is positive for COVID and then the baby tests positive for COVID, in some ways it makes it easier because if the baby is well and not sick, as the vast majority of babies who test positive for COVID are, 
then we stop worrying about whether the mom is going to give COVID to her baby because that has already happened. And the, the mom who's positive for COVID can take care of her baby who's positive for COVID in whatever way she sees fit. And as I've said, the vast majority of babies with COVID may test positive, but they're not sick. Just to clarify, the, the thought process, at least from an obstetric standpoint, is that the baby doesn't get it during the pregnancy. The baby would either get it right at the time of delivery or sometime shortly thereafter. Exactly. Exactly. And because we don't think that babies are born, you know, with COVID, unless they got it right at the time of delivery, we do try very hard to not have moms who have COVID transmit it to the baby, because obviously there is a risk of illness. Again, in babies, that risk is really, really small. We haven't either in New York or in other parts of the world seen a lot of disease caused by COVID, even people, even babies who test COVID positive. We don't know why that is. We don't know why babies seem to not be particularly sensitive to COVID illness, but they're not. But we do try to make sure that if a mom is COVID positive and the baby is negative, that they stay that way. And so that has involved a whole lot of changes to how we normally do things, because normally we really strongly encourage a lot of physical contact between moms and babies in the hours and days after birth. And if mom has COVID and baby doesn't, then we try to limit that contact such that mom won't give it to the baby. That becomes really difficult. Yeah, it's, I was thinking how that would happen practically. I mean, I guess you would have the mom wear gloves or a mask or what would you do or just have someone else hold the baby? We've been asking families and we work with families on this. So there's there's many different options for how to try to try to try to make this happen. And and luckily the 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 CDC in Atlanta and the American Academy of Pediatrics have all provided some guidance on the various options families can choose if mom has COVID and the baby doesn't and we want to keep it that way. We generally recommend that mom should designate someone else, a healthy person who doesn't have COVID, to be the primary caretaker of the baby. And then mom has some options if she wants to breastfeed, which we still very much encourage. It doesn't seem to be that there's COVID transmitted in breast milk, so the breast milk itself is safe. We can encourage mom to pump, and then a healthy person can bottle feed the baby. If mom really feels strongly that she wants to actually put the baby to the breast, we make sure that she wears a mask and prevent, you know, washes her hands really well and make sure that, you know, all of the other things around her clothing and any sort of nipple shield or anything like that are really, really clean before she puts the baby to the breast and then hands the baby back to another healthy caregiver. Right. And do we have any sense now about what is the likelihood, you know, if a mom tests positive, you know, what percentage of the babies will test positive or if they test negative, how many will end up testing positive? I presume it's too early to have precise numbers on this, but do you have a sense of what that is? We don't have great data because that, that sort of data wasn't very effectively collected in China. The Chinese had a very different practice in terms of management of moms and babies and that the vast majority of the moms delivered by C-section and the babies were separated very soon after birth. So we don't have data on what we're trying to do in the United States, which is let mom deliver however she would have otherwise delivered and then have some contact with the baby after birth, even if there is another healthy caregiver. It seems like there is a very low rate of transmission from mom to baby in the immediate time kind of during labor and immediately after birth. In terms of the subsequent weeks, you know, when we we send a family home and we say, you know, okay, mom, you have COVID, baby doesn't have COVID, you have to try to separate from your baby for the next two weeks until you're well again. You know, that's a really difficult thing for families to do. And we frankly don't have any data about how well or badly that's going because we're not testing babies without symptoms in the United States at this point in time. So we're, we've really been saving those COVID tests 
for patients who are ill and where we really need to know to be able to manage the patient. So I don't have a good sense as to what happens over time at all because we really don't have any information on that. And so what would you tell the families in that situation just to watch the baby for signs of infection like fever or cough or something of that sort? Exactly. So either if mom has COVID and baby doesn't or in the the very small number of cases where mom has baby has COVID and baby has COVID, we recommend to watch the baby for fever, for cough, for difficulty breathing. We have at Mount Sinai had you know, very few patients who have been COVID positive who had been in infancy. We have had babies coming in with fever and get as part of the usual fever evaluation that we do in very young babies. We look for bacterial infection. We look for various viral infections and have found that COVID has caused fever in some small babies, but not illness more than fever. They didn't have trouble breathing. They weren't, you know, in, 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 in otherwise in trouble. There have been, again, a small number of patients who have come in with actually some breathing difficulties, who have needed a little bit of support in the hospital, who have gotten hospitalized after initial birth discharge from the hospital. But for most of those babies, there was something else going on. It wasn't a full-term, healthy, uncomplicated pregnancy. So the, the most common situation that we're seeing in the mo- at the moment, which is where mom has COVID, COVID comes in and has a healthy baby who doesn't have COVID, those babies have in general not been coming back to the hospital, which is a good thing. They've stayed home with their moms and they've been well. And, you know, we, we honestly don't know whether they subsequently get COVID from their mother. Right. It's interesting. And I want to talk about a little bit more. Number one, just as a sense of reassurance, you know, we've seen the same thing amongst pregnant women that we thought, you know, when this all started, that pregnant women would have a much worse course with COVID than non-pregnant women, similar to the flu and other infections, but we really have not seen that. And it's interesting what you're talking about with newborns and what others have been reporting, that newborns also don't seem to do worse. I mean, typically with newborns, everyone's terrified when they get, you know, flu or any sort of infection or, you know, virus, bacterial, whatever it is. It's like the scariest thing in the world for, you know, pediatricians and for parents, but it doesn't seem to be the case for this. And I think that that's quite reassuring considering how many women who are going to be delivering will probably test positive. Yeah. And I think that as we learn more about COVID, we really do understand that there is a high percentage of people who have COVID and don't know it. And because testing has been so limited in the United States, those people you know, haven't come to the hospital, haven't needed testing. And it's been surprising to all of us as we've done things like universal testing for women coming in for delivery to find out that there is a very high percentage of people who actually do have COVID and really don't have any symptoms or any illness. And the babies seem to be similar. Is there any thought of doing universal testing on babies for the same reason we do it on mothers? At the moment, there there still are limitations in availability of testing supplies. So that hasn't been raised because it wouldn't change care. It might be interesting for us to understand, you know, but I think at the moment until we need to use the testing to actually change the care of the patient, universal testing hasn't been recommended for that reason, just in terms of conservation of resources. Do you have any sense just from your own understanding of newborn medicine, why they wouldn't get sick from this virus or is it just a complete mystery? Now that's a million dollar question. I think there's a lot of whys with COVID. Now we don't understand why children in general don't get particularly sick with COVID. There are certainly cases reported of children getting sick, but they're very rare. For the most part, children seem to have it either have no symptoms or just a mild cold and then get better. Even children with underlying conditions like bad asthma sometimes do show more symptoms from COVID, but they're still in general not getting sick enough to have to go to the hospital. So compared to adults, that's really not very sick at all. That's a good thing, but children seem to be protected generally. And we don't understand that. We also really don't understand why some adults get tremendously ill with COVID and others don't. There was a lot of early reports that it was largely age-related or largely related to other health problems. But, you know, as our experience in the United States isn't exactly mirroring that 
experience in other countries and that there are, you know, younger people getting ill and there are older people not getting ill. And we don't really understand those differences between individuals. Wow. Now, when you have babies who are actually admitted to the intensive care unit, not because of COVID, but just for whatever reason, prematurity or other issues or whatnot, are you doing more precautions in terms of separating and you know protective gear and whatnot to prevent the possibility of a spread of COVID amongst the NICU babies? So we've done a lot of general protective measures in the hospital overall. All staff who are interacting with patients in the NICU and everywhere else are wearing a mask. You know, reg- regular surgical masks, not one of the fancy N95s, but that is generally thought to protect babies and everybody else from people who might have COVID but not have symptoms from accidentally spreading it. Masks have been shown to be pretty effective at that. So for a couple of weeks now, everybody inside the NICU has been asked to wear a mask. We've also limited the number of visitors to the NICU. We used to have a visitation policy that would allow families to designate other people who could come visit, whether those were other family members, grandparents, close friends. We don't allow that at the moment. It's really just two visitors per baby, which is usually mom and dad, although it may be mom and a support person or you know two other people. And it's just those two people for the however long the baby's in the hospital. And you know for NICU babies, that actually can be a while. And then we ask that people visit just one at a time. So it's only one adult at the bedside, one visitor at the bedside at a time. And again, an attempt to just basically do social distancing and cut down on the traffic. And all visitors get screened before they come into the hospital to make sure that they don't have a fever and make sure they don't have symptoms of a respiratory illness before they're allowed to visit. So all of those things have been newly implemented over the last couple of weeks to try to reduce the risk of spreading COVID in the NICU, just as COVID could be spread in the grocery store or out on the street. What about parents who have actually tested positive but don't have any symptoms? How does that work in terms of visiting? So parents who have tested positive are asked not to visit until they have completed the week of sort of isolation that is generally recommended for people who test positive for COVID. So if a, if a mom doesn't have a whole lot of symptoms but did test positive for COVID, we ask her to wait a week from the time she was tested and be at least three days without fever and have improvement of any symptoms she might have had. So even if she just had like a little bit of a runny nose, that needs to be getting better before she can come to the NICU. So so most parents who don't have much in the way of symptoms, if they do test positive for COVID, are asked to wait a week before coming to make sure they don't spread it to anybody else. Right. And those are consistent with the New York City Department of Health guidelines. There's there's different guidelines all over the country based on what state or what city you're in. But that's that's pretty typical for New York City because they're from the New York City guidelines from the Department of Health. Exactly. Yeah. So the the New York City Department of Health, the CDC, AAP have all put out various different guidelines and we've been following, you know, very closely with whatever the most appropriate guideline is for our our area. They're also the same guidelines that are used for healthcare workers. So if I was to get COVID, you know, anywhere, either in the community or at work, I would have to be home from work for at least a week and be fever free and not have anything tremendous in the way of symptoms before I could come back. Now, the NICU is normally a place where there's visitors there all the time. I mean, parents are there, they're welcome to be there, they're invited to be there, it's good for them to be there. How have they responded to this new policy, which puts some limitations on visiting and spending time with their newborns? Is it Has there been a lot of pushback or most people generally understand the reason and so they're accepting of it? I think people have been generally pretty accepting and they understand that we're all working really hard to try to do the best in what's a very difficult situation with a lot of unknowns. Obviously, no parent likes to be told that there are limitations on how or when they can visit their baby. We have maintained the ability for families to visit 24-7. So, you know, if a family can only come at a certain time of day, you know, that that's fine. We're, we're happy to accommodate that. For some families, it is harder to have, you know, one visitor at a time to promote social distancing. And because we just couldn't figure out a safe way to do it, 
all the, the visitor lounges in the hospital were closed. So if two parents come at the same time, there's really nowhere in the hospital for the other parent to wait, which is difficult for families. And, you know, we ask that a family visit for a period of time. And then once they go home, they don't come back until tomorrow. And that's also to kind of allow our screeners to do a good job screening. So less traffic at the door and just overall less less people in the NICU at any given time. So that means that people do tend to visit a little bit less than they did previously. Some some families were really able to come and, you know, almost move in with us. And, and that's not really possible at the moment because we don't have sleeping facilities and there's not food and, you know, all those things that would, would make that more comfortable, which is obviously not our preference. We would love to have families there all the time, but it's really a balance between allowing the visitation that we can and keeping everybody in the unit safe. So I think, I think families have been pretty understanding of that. And, you know, the families that have had special issues or problems have reached out to NICU leadership and, you know, we, we do our best to work around that. So we, we've tried to be as responsive as we can to, to what the family needs and have certainly been able to have dialogue and conversations with families when there's been a problem. Right. We had a similar circumstance on the labor floor because the labor floor is typically a place where someone does not come alone. They come with at least one person with them, a support person, whether it's their partner, whether it's a doula, whether it's their mother, whoever it might be that's going to come with them. And the labor floor leadership was trying to figure out, just like you were saying, how do you balance the known benefit of having a support person in labor with the potential risk to that person, to the person in labor, to the babies, to the staff of spreading infectious disease. And it was very complicated and it's gone through some iterations. And where they are now is they they do allow someone for the labor and delivery, and then that person leaves after delivery. And as you were saying, for the NICU, that's a place that normally has a lot of visitors and a lot of people around. And it must have been so hard to figure out how to best balance that. It's, it sounds like you came to a good place, but it must have been very difficult and you must have struggled with how to do this because like you said, you you want people to be there to visit their babies. That, that's a good thing. You know, it's been a tough balance. And I think that as the COVID situation has progressed in New York City over the last month, it's changed frequently. And that's also very hard for everybody. You know, the rules change sort of <laughs> on a relatively frequent basis. And unfortunately, that's just been necessitated by the situation, the changing situation in New York. But I think that, you know, luckily, we we have good partners. And, you know, it's, all of these decisions are made by groups of people, not by one person alone. And we have taken family input into, you know, rolling out our policies and fine tuning them. So, you know, I think I think in general, particularly in New York, the way that New York is right at the moment, people genuinely understand that we're all working in what is an unusual situation for everybody and trying very, very hard to, to do do our best to maintain, you know, that good family contact that we know is really important for neurodevelopment of babies, um, along with the infection prevention and keeping everybody from getting COVID, which we know is also very important. A hundred percent. It's so wonderful that you came on to talk about this. First of all, just so parents know that the doctors and the nurses and the staff taking care of their newborns number one, care so much and want it, want the babies to be well and want the moms to be well and want the whole family experience to be good, but also are the type of people that not only consider what they do and their patients, you know, what the babies and mothers, but are also the type of pe- people who are willing to step up and take care of anybody who is ill and use their skills across uh, ages, which is something, like we said, they normally wouldn't be doing. And I think that this is just a crisis that we have 
not seen before, or at least not recently in New York, and everyone is really pulling together and trying their best to make everything as well as possible for these women. And I really thank you and the entire you know department, your entire division for what you're doing. Obviously, we work very closely together, and I know my, my patients appreciate it tremendously, and I'm sure all of our listeners do as well. Well, thank you so much for having me on your program, and thank you so much for your, your continued hard work on behalf of your patients and our shared patients. It's, you know, it's always a group effort. I appreciate it. Have a wonderful day. Thank you for listening to the Healthful Woman Podcast. To learn more about our podcast, please visit our website at www.healthfulwoman.com. That's H-E-A-L-T-H-F-U-L-W-O-M-A-N.com. If you have any questions about this podcast or any other topic you would like us to address, please feel free to email us at hw at healthfulwoman.com. Have a great day. The information discussed in Healthful Woman is intended for educational uses only. It does not replace medical care from your physician. Healthful Woman is meant to expand your knowledge of women's health and does not replace ongoing care from your regular physician or gynecologist. We encourage you to speak with your doctor about specific diagnoses and treatment options for an effective treatment plan.